Good morning, everybody. I think the person who was down to read the scripture this morning um, was not able to be here, so um, I will be the reader. Uh, so if you'd like to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3, starting from verse 20, and it will be on the screen. Um, I'm not sure what page it is in your pew Bibles. <laughs> Um, So Romans chapter 3, starting from verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. As was mentioned this morning already, this coming Tuesday, October 31st, marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which by any, uh, any measure was one of the most impacting movements in, in history, not only helping to bring about the Protestant church, but all of modern society. And so today, we thought it would be appropriate to Uh, examine a question that was found right at the heart of the Reformation from the book that helped spark it uh, through Martin Luther. And the question is this, is God alone our Savior? Or do we help in some way to redeem ourselves? And so uh, this is one of those topics that you could There's so many different angles to take, so many things that I would love to to share because it's such an interesting period in history and and, uh, so many things um, to do, but I'm not hopefully going to turn it into a history lecture, uh, even though that that is one of my my joys and passions. But uh, what I want to do is share just a short look at some of the history of this question, as well as Martin Luther's great rediscovery in the book of Romans, which ended up leading eventually to the Reformation. And then I want to look at some of the continuing significance for this question for us here today. So uh, we start off by looking at a very short history of a very human heresy. <laughs> uh, when, we read the, um, when we read about the early church in the New Testament, one of the first questions that it had to d- d- wrestle with internally was, What must a person do to be saved? 
What are the minimum human requirements for salvation? Now, the church started as a movement within Judaism, but as the gospel spread, it quickly began to gain lots and lots of non-Jewish Gentile disciples. And so the question was, does a person need to adopt Jewish religious practices to be redeemed and accepted into God's family, or is faith in Jesus alone enough? And in the book of Acts, uh, and especially in Paul's letters, we can see that there were uh, at least two camps that emerged. We had, on one hand, uh, the people that came to be known as the Judaizers, who um, claimed that a person needed to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and follow the Jewish law in order to be saved. And on the other hand, we have the Apostle Paul, who strongly opposed that viewpoint and said it was actually a betrayal of the gospel. And he even was bold enough to confront Peter and some of the other major apostles when they fell under the influence of that viewpoint. And his, his definitive answer to that question was best summed up, I think, in Uh, Galatians 2.16, where it says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And in case you missed it, he says it again, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's such a repetitive statement because he's saying it so emphatically. Um. So, fast forward 400 years, uh, thereabouts, and a similar controversy arose again in the church between uh, Pelagius, great name, and, uh, and Augustine. Um, Pelagi- you can read about these people more, uh, but Pelagius was a British monk who was really a moral reformer at heart, and he wanted to bring... Uh, uh, a stronger moral reform to the church. And he believed that every person had a God-given ability and the freedom to improve themselves. And those who follow the moral teachings and example of Jesus become acceptable to God and they can be saved. But Augustine, on the other hand, he he was a North African bishop. Uh, He completely reversed the order that Pelagius He said human beings are utterly broken by sin and unable to please God on their own no matter how hard they try. And you can read about his efforts in doing that in in his autobiography called Confessions. Um, But what he said is, instead of human effort, it's God's grace that brings us to Christ. And it's only his grace working inside us which gives us the ability to obey God from the new heart that he gives us. And so we have two opposite viewpoints. Pelagius says, obedience comes first, salvation is the effect. Augustine says, God's grace comes first in salvation, and obedience is the effect. And so um, the church came to agree that Augustine's view best exemplified the teaching of Scripture, especially it makes me think of Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 to 10, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the church recognized that Pelagius's gospel, when you took it to its logical conclusion, ended up being no gospel at all. And that's the definition of a heresy, a belief that claims to uphold the gospel, but when taken to its conclusions, ends up nullifying it or denying it. Now, fast forward about a thousand years, give or take, and that brings us to the time of the Reformation. And although the circumstances were very, very different, in a lot of ways we see this same controversy flaring up. So I want to paint a very, very broad picture of the state of the church, uh, of the Western Roman Catholic Church at this time. Uh, in, the, in the medieval era, um, the Roman Catholic Church was present and intertwined in every facet of society. But by the 16th century, the time of Luther, large portions of the church had become infamously corrupt and immoral, and, uh, and it was in a state of decay. And there had been widespread outcry for reform uh, for, the, the, for uh, a long time, people going back to John Wycliffe in England and Jan Hus in Bohemia, uh, had called for a reform of the church. And if you want to see why they were so upset, all you have to do is take a look at the popes of the time. Uh, there, was a, there was a TV series called The Borgia. Uh, don't watch it, but uh, <laughs> um, if HBO tries to make a, a, a TV series about a church leader, you know they probably weren't the most savory of characters. Um, but take Pope Alexander VI, for example. He bribed his way into becoming Pope at four, in 1492. Even though he was 61 years old, he had a 19-year-old mistress uh, whose brother he made a cardinal in the church. And uh, he also gave powerful church positions to all, his, all of his nephews, which is actually where the word nepotism comes from. Um, when he wasn't throwing uh, sex parties in the Vatican, he was busy having people assassinated <laughs> I'm not making this up. He had to wear a mask during public appearances because his face was so disfigured from syphilis. Um, and when he finally died, apparently it was because of a backfired plan to poison one of his cardinals. So, uh, a great guy. Um, <laughs> but the church didn't only face moral and uh, political corruption. Really, these were just symptoms of a deeper uh, decay in the church's foundational truths. For the average person, almost every facet of, of medieval Christianity, I think from doctrine to practice to even architecture, had come to reinforce a picture of God and even his son as a fierce and terrible judge who resided high, high above humanity in vaulted ceilings, only communicating through a privileged caste of priests who performed mysterious rituals in a language no one understood, and who condemned even his faithful followers to untold thousands of years of suffering in purgatory before they were allowed to enter heaven. And so 
It's one reason why people started to focus so much on venerating the saints, especially Mary, because in contrast to that terrible, frightening picture of God as a judge, the saints gave a more down-to-earth, compassionate, motherly touch to faith. And because of that crushing weight of guilt and ignorance and fear, it was also why things like giving special donations to the church ended up becoming twisted into the practice of selling documents that promised forgiveness for sins for you or your family in purgatory, which came to be known as indulgences. And indulgences ended up being the occasion for a certain German monk named Martin Luther to, to speak out against the, the corruption in the church of his day. So let's talk about Luther. Luther became a, an Augustinian monk at age 21, and uh, out of fear for God, he was absolutely obsessed. He, he actually made a vow during a thunderstorm where he was afraid for his life that if God spared him, he would become a monk. So it was all based in fear to begin with. But his, his career as a monk, he was absolutely obsessed with making himself acceptable before God, so much so that he would spend hours a day confessing to his to his superior. Uh, so much, his superior would get annoyed and say, come back when you have, that, when you have something to actually confess. Um, but he was obsessed, and he was, in, he, was, he was in a crisis personally over how, to be, how, over how a righteous God could possibly find him, with all his faults and failures, acceptable. He had a clear picture of God's holiness and also a clear picture of his own sinfulness. And the crisis was how to bridge the gap. And after years of excruciating uh, spiritual, mental uh, torment uh, for, for Luther, he suddenly had a revelation while he was sitting in the, what was called the cloaca tower of his monastery, which it just so happens, was also the monk's outhouse. So, you may have read studies that say people have their most creative thoughts while on the toilet. Luther was no exception to that rule. <laughs> By his own admission, that's where it happened. But anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. The revelation that struck him was based on what he had been mulling over in Romans 1.17 which is the words, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther said, he, that phrase, the righteousness of God, he had hated so much. It was so fearful for him um, because it revealed that standard that he knew he could never match up to. But the revelation that suddenly hit him as he thought about that verse was that the righteousness of God, what it was talking about there, was good news to sinners like him. Because it wasn't talking about something that he needed to earn, but it was talking about a gift of God's own righteousness offered by grace through faith. And he finally realized that the thing that he was in agony over trying to achieve, God had been offering for free all along. 
And that's why the good news is such good news. And he said that, that light that the Holy Spirit turned on, it was like peering through the gates of paradise for him. And so I want to zoom in now on that passage uh, that, that, we, that we read, which expounds more on that verse that gave Luther that, that revelation. And we're going to see why this is such radically good news to humanity and why justification before God could only ever be offered as a gift. So, um, just to introduce the book of Romans very quickly, um, this is a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome, uh, and we don't know how the church in Rome was was founded, um, but it seems like Paul is writing in order to give them an apostolic foundation for the faith. He hadn't yet been able to visit. It wasn't founded by one of, the, one of the apostles. And so Paul is writing to make sure that they have the foundation of the faith laid by uh, one, of the, one of the apostles. And so um, this is, that's why the book of Romans is so dense. It's, it's Paul's most um, thorough and concentrated explanation of, of the, the full story of God's salvation. And scholars believe the church in Rome would have been largely made up of former slaves who had purchased their own freedom, purchased their own redemption, uh, which is what it was called. And that helped, that, when I read that, it made, it made a lot of sense because when you read Romans, Paul's, Paul uses the language of uh, slavery to sin versus freedom in Christ. It's one of the main images in the book. And so... Uh, when you realize that he's talking to former slaves, that brings this extra kind of personal dimension to this gift that he's talking about. Now, in reading that passage, one of the, one of the words that is constantly repeated is righteousness. But we need to just stop to talk about what does righteousness mean? Because uh, it's not a word that we use in everyday language very often. I don't think it's a word that connects uh, with us modern uh, hearers. Um, and if anything, I think it's, it, when it is used, it's used with a negative connotation, uh, like a holier-than-thou kind of um, derogatory term. But uh, Tim Keller has a really good way of explaining it. He defines righteousness as uh, your validating record of performance, which is something that's a lot more relatable because uh, if you've ever applied for a job, you know what this is about, because when you apply for a job, especially in any kind of professional setting, you need to, you need to bring a document called your CV in England or your resume. Or, uh, it's a list of your professional achievements, your experience, which is intended to prove, here is why I'm worthy of this position. Here is why you should hire me. And so uh, it's, it's, it's your effort to say, here's what I've done, uh, which shows my competence. This is why I'm worthy. And if it's good enough, the idea is that you'll get the job. Or if you've ever applied to uh, study at university, you'll be asked to provide. They're not just going to welcome you in with a handshake. They're going to ask you, what have you studied before? What have your grades been? You have to submit a transcript so that they know you're worthy to be on this course you're going to be able to handle what we're going to throw at you. Um, it's your list of academic achievements. 
And so you could, you could highlight any number of situations in everyday life where that's the case. Um, and that's what we're used to in virtually every sphere of our daily lives. And so the most natural thing in the world would be to assume that that's also the way, that that's also the way it works with God. Every religion in the world works in the same way. The basic message in different terms is do your best in life to put together a list of moral achievements and good deeds, and in the end, if you've done enough, you will be acceptable before God and be allowed, you'll be worthy to enter paradise or uh, achieve enlightenment or uh, achieve oneness with the divine or whatever uh, way it's expressed. So every religion tells that same, works in the same way as basically your CV or your, um, your, uh, your grades. But that search for righteousness isn't only something that affects religious people. It's actually something that affects every human being. Um, in that passage that we read, there were two words, righteousness and justification, that were central. Um, and even though they're both used here and generally they mean two different things, uh, they're actually the same Greek word in the original, dikeo, uh, um, which we translate righteousness and justification with different endings. Now, everybody, regardless of whether or not they're formally religious, is searching for something to, to justify their existence. Something to prove that they are worthwhile as a person. Something to, to validate their life and why they're here. whether it's uh, my work, that I know my value because of the work that I produce, or I know my value, um, I'm validated by my achievements, or I'm validated by my children. Everybody is looking for some source of validation, some source of justification to prove to themselves and to the world that I'm worthy of being here. And it's actually, a, I think the reason that it touches everybody, it's a wise impulse on our part because the Bible does tell us in Romans 14, it says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We will be called to give a justification before God. We will be called to give account of ourselves before God. And so when we stand face to face with God, and we're asked for an account, what are we going to turn to? What are we going to point to to say, this justifies my life and what I did with what you gave me? And when you, to give a, a really quick overview of the first couple chapters of, of Romans before we get to the passage we read, the first two chapters of Romans are about the fact that God is completely fair and impartial as a judge. He will judge us based on the knowledge that we had. And so those that know his law in Scripture, God's people, especially Israel it's talking about, um, will be judged according to the law. But it says if you haven't heard the law, if you're someone that has never come into contact with Scripture, then 
God's going to judge you based on the law that's written on your heart. The law that's written in our consciences. And the problem is that we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. And I, there's, there's a great illustration of that that um, I imagine, if, you've, if you're a person that's never heard the, the, of the law and God's requirements, imagine that uh, you go around life with a, a recording device around your neck and it only picks up the times when you kind of point the finger at someone else and say, that's wrong, don't do that, you should have done this, why didn't you do that? It only picks up, in other words, your moral standards that you apply to those around you. And so if you've never heard the law of God, one day you stand before him and all he's going to do is press play on that tape. And when we're honest with ourselves, we know that we wouldn't even match up to our own standards, let alone God's standards of holiness. And so when you, those first two chapters of Romans, the major thrust is that humanity has fallen away from God, rebelled from, uh, against God, and God set a plan in motion to, to, to fix everything, to redeem it, to bring about a Messiah. But even the people that he chose to bring about the Messiah, the people of Israel, even they have turned away from God and started trusting in their own righteousness, their own goodness. Uh, and so, the human predicament is summed up at the end, uh, that just before we started reading, it says, for, oh no, we, we, the first verse we read, it sums up the human predicament. For by works of the law, no human being, whether Gentile or Jew, no human being will be justified in his sight. And right there at verse, the next verse, verse 21, comes the radical, earth-shattering shift when Paul says, but now, but now, and this is, this is uh, using the terms that we've been talking about, um, a gloss on, on, on this verse, but now, an entirely new righteousness has been revealed, which is separate from the law. God's own validating record of performance offered to us as a free gift of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. But now, there is a totally new record of performance that is offered to you as a gift and that is something completely radical. And I encourage you to read, uh, to go study those first couple chapters and, and you see the human predicament. No one is righteous before God. But now, God has provided a completely new way. And it's completely unique in all the world's philosophies and religions because what Paul's saying is what makes you acceptable before God is not your own record of achievement, but God's record of achievement offered to you as a gift. And then in verse 23 and 24, it sums it up. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I think, you know, these are really familiar verses. And I think many of us would read 
when it says there, we are justified by his grace, we would, we would read that word justified basically as forgiveness. We are forgiven by grace through Christ Jesus on the cross. But justification, righteousness, that dikeo, the same word, it's infinitely more than just forgiveness. To Paul's original Greek-speaking audience, that word um, evoked a, a legal meaning of being declared righteous in court. So um, I couldn't really think of a, of a present-day equivalent to this because I think the best, if you go to court today, if you're brought up on charges in court, the best outcome you can hope for is not guilty, acquittal, yeah? But... Um, it, so it's essentially negative, not guilty. You are released from the punishment of, uh, of that crime. But to be justified, to be declared righteous in court, it meant not only having forgiveness, not only being pardoned, it meant being recognized as being fully in the right. And as a result of that, being given all of the benefits and honor that were due. It's infinitely more than just being uh, forgiven for the punishment of your sins and escaping from suffering uh, in purgatory or in hell. Um, it's not simply being acquitted. It's more like, imagine the judge, instead of, not ju instead of just saying you're not guilty, imagine the judge stepping down from his uh, whatever it is, stepping down and hanging the Medal of Honor around your neck, if you're American. Or if you're British, the judge comes down and uh, makes you a, 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 a knight uh, of the British Empire. Or, you know, replace the highest possible honor in your nation. That's what it's like. It's not only forgiveness and negative, it is the most positive outcome that a person could possibly receive. And that, it's, so it's, it's, not, um, it's not just getting off the hook. That's usually where we stop. Of course, it involves that, but it's so much more than that. It's not just getting off the hook. It's being awarded the highest honor, which opens doors of uh, influence and, and power and authority and honor in the king's court. And so the radical good news is not just that we're forgiven, but we're, we're, we're given the unimaginable honor of being granted God's own achievements, God, God's own record of goodness in Jesus, given freely to us. And that's why it says, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the most incredible verses in the New Testament, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he'd done everything that we did so that we could be treated as if we've done everything he did. That's incredible. And it's not only the way to be forgiven, but it's, be, it's, it, it's being welcomed 
into God's family, into God's royal family. You don't just walk out of the court a free man. You walk into the king's court, part of the family. Wow. (laughs) Now, why did God offer it as a gift? Why didn't he just do it like everyone else imagines he would do it through, through payments, through some sort of earning or merit on our part. And uh, this gives me the opportunity to, to talk about one of my favorite books, uh, which is called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. Um, and it sheds light on, on this question because what he does in this book is he, he takes history and anthropology um, and he shows that through all human cultures, gifts are a special category of property that are different from commodities that are bought and sold and and bartered. Um, Really, it's a discussion about creativity because he goes on to say, creativity and the arts are actually gifts. By nature, they're gifts. And so um, they must be treated as gifts if they're not going to be violated or destroyed. They can't be treated as commodities because it violates their nature. And we'll, I'll show you what I mean by that, but, or what he means by that. Uh, now, I love this book, not only because I'm an artist, and, and it is because of that, but because it really helped me see a, a totally different aspect of the gospel uh, and the beauty of the fact that it's a free gift in God's grace. Um, why does God offer all the riches of his justification, all the honors that he bestows upon us when we be, uh, become uh, sons uh, and daughters through Christ? Why does he do that as a gift and not as something that we earn? Because he has every right to make us earn it, right? He doesn't owe us anything. So why does he do it as a gift? I think at the heart of the reason is because relationship is the meaning of life. God, the perfect union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity, God is relationship in himself. That's why we can say that God is love. We're going to talk about this in another sermon. This is why we can say God is love, not just that God is loving, because love always requires relationship. Um, But God created us out of love, and the God of the Bible is the only God who not only desires obedient subjects, who will do what he tells them, but he desires intimate and beloved sons and daughters. He desires not only subjects, but sons and daughters. And because love is at the center of everything, the only form of exchange that is consistent with love is that of a gift. The only form of exchange that is consistent with love is that of a gift. When you think about it, um, when you make a transaction, when you exchange you know, goods for money, uh, that creates a dividing line. That depersonalizes uh, the, the, the two people in that transaction. It creates a boundary line. It separates. But gifts make personal bonds between people. Gifts solidify relationships. That's why when you have two people that are in love, they would never, it would never cross their minds to sell things to one another. Right? They give gifts to one another because they're, 
the whole, the whole point is they want to be unified. They want to be bonded in love. And gifts are the way, they're the only currency of love. Um, gifts form powerful relational bonds. And that's why if you're ever offered a gift by the mafia, you should turn it down. When Don Corleone comes and tells you, I want to offer you a gift, don't take it because, because suddenly you form a relationship with a dangerous person. Uh, gifts are the currency of love because gifts are naturally, the nature of a gift is that it's, it's given generously without limits and it's given without the guarantee of a return. So the essence of a gift is that it, everything, you know, if I want to give the person that I love, if I want to give Selena a gift, the, the, the heart of that gift is I want to give everything that it's within my power to give. That's, that's the essence of a gift. Um, and I'm also giving without any regard for what I'm going to get in return. So if I, if I, give, if I give you a gift uh, simply because I know that you're going to give me an equal gift in return, it ceased to be a gift that started to become a bartering system. Uh, which, of course, some people use to get around these kinds of laws and limits. Uh, but it ceases to be a gift whenever we do that. Um, the next thing, gifts are not something which can be earned or bought. A gift cannot be earned or bought. If a gift is given for what's earned through work, it ceases to become a gift and it becomes wages. That's why Paul says what we actually have paid for with what we've done, the wages of sin, is death. Um, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Um, so, you know, I, the, the image that came to my mind with this is, uh, if you throw a birthday party, you know, and everyone gives you gifts, and your response is to pull out your wallet and to pay everyone for all the gifts that they bought you, they're not gifts anymore. <laughs> Um, you've kind of gone against the whole spirit of what it is. You're treating them as commodities. So gifts are the opposite of commodities because gifts naturally gravitate towards the place of emptiness, to the place of lack, of, of lacking. Whereas commodities flow towards the place of abundance. They flow towards the, the, um, the, the place of fullness. So in a marketplace... Um, all of the goods in the marketplace are going to flow towards the people that have the money to pay for them. You hope. Um, whereas gifts, they naturally flow towards the people that can't pay for them. Um, they, they naturally flow towards the place of emptiness. And so when you add that picture together, of the essence, the, the nature of gifts, what we can see is Jesus' death on the cross, it's the truest gift that has ever been given. Because Jesus, even though he was the Son of God, even though he was God in the flesh, he didn't just give of himself, he gave himself without limit, with no possibility of, of return on, on the investment. 
And he did it to bring us, the, the empty, the ones who had nothing whatsoever to offer in merit, he did it to bring us into loving relationship with him. He bonded us through a gift. And so my question is, what is the natural response to a gift? How, how are you supposed to respond to this? And we will get back to the Reformation. Uh, the first proper response to a gift is to glorify the giver. That's naturally what you do in response to a gift. Gifts are the only form of exchange which glorify the giver rather than the recipient. So for instance, uh, if you, you go out today, it's been a good year, you go out and buy a Ferrari, okay? Who gets the glory? You or the salesman? Well, it's you, because you're the one out on the street, the big shot driving the Ferrari, right? You're the recipient. All the glory goes to you, because you had the money to be able to pay for that. Um, now, when someone gives you a massive gift that's out of all proportion to what you could possibly have earned or pay back, who gets the glory? You or the giver? Well, it's the giver. Because it would, it would be really strange to say, hey, you see how I received that gift? You see how I did that? No, you'd say, I can't believe this person that he would give me this incredible gift. I can't believe this Jesus who would give me this gift that I could never possibly repay, that I didn't deserve. Giving gifts, giving great gifts makes the giver look great. Giving good gifts makes the giver look great. It would be, yeah. Um, so that's the first response, is you glorify the giver. If you begin to glorify yourself, you're treating it like a commodity. You're treating it like something you purchased. The second proper response to a gift is to offer a gift in return. It's not paying the person back. It's not earning what they gave you. It's offering something generously out of your gratitude for what they've given you. So that's why when people give you a gift, at least in England, you give them a card to say thank you. The card is worthless, basically, right? And you look at it once, that's nice, at least me. Um, send me e-cards at Christmas uh, <laughs> if you're going to send a card. Um, but in other words, it, it's a show of gratitude. It's something that's not necessarily, it's not like-for-like like value, but it's a show of your gratitude for that gift that you receive. And so it's not as if we can offer, you know, God's given us this incredible gift. It's not as if we can offer God something back that he doesn't already have. Do, do, you, do you know anyone who it's really hard to buy presents for because they have everything already? Yeah, <laughs> so someone smacked their husband. <laughs> um, my father-in-law is a bit like that. Um, but it's not as if we can offer God anything that he doesn't already have, that he didn't already make. Um, so what, does he, what would be a proper response to the gift that he's given us? Well, the only gift that God desires is us. That's why it says in Romans 12, 1, after Paul has gone through 
uh, uh, 11 chapters of, of the gospel and expounding what it means in the Christian's life, he turns to, this is the response, and he says, present your whole selves. Present your bodies, your, your, your mind, spirit, and soul um, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your rational sacrifice or your rational spiritual worship. The only rational response to the God who gave himself to die for us is the grateful gift of offering our lives back to him. And so now can you see a little bit of how the gospel can only ever be good news when it's a gift. The only gospel is a gospel that is a gift. And a gift, it's a gift that once we receive it, it transforms us with gratitude and makes us want to offer a gift back to the giver. And that was the wonderful rediscovery. It was always there. It's not as if the Reformation just made up all this new wonderful stuff. It was a rediscovery that dawned on Martin Luther one day of what the Bible had been saying all along. And that's where, uh, out of that simple but incredibly powerful truth, all of the other uh, core um, teachings of the Reformation came about. And they're summarized. We're not going to get into detail of all these mean, but what they do is they... they uh, they explain, they expound on what we've, what we've read. Um, they're summarized in five Latin slogans called the five solas, or if you're posh, the five soli. Um, the first one was sola scriptura. Am I, you know, I was thinking about this. How could the church have gotten so far from the message that is clearly in the, in, in the Bible and one of the most important reasons, I'm reading a great biography on, on Luther right now, um, but it made this really clear. One of the most important reasons is that at that time, virtually nobody read the Bible. It might seem hard to believe, you know, we're all sitting here with Bibles in our own languages, uh, but virtually nobody at that time read the Bible. Even the monks, who were the most educated people of the time, they didn't primarily study the Bible. Uh, they studied commentaries on a summary of the Bible's meaning called Lombard's Sentences, which, as you can tell by the title, is a thrilling read. Um, and whenever people get into weird ideas and different things, uh, uh, it tends to be there's been a straying from the Bible and what it says into what's culturally accepted or, or just rationally more familiar. Um, but the first, the, the fountainhead of the Reformation was the return to the Bible, the return to Scripture in the original languages. And they recognized uh, that it was the final authority in doctrine and practice. And so sola scriptura, by Scripture alone. And as a result of what, what they rediscovered there, Martin Luther and others, it, it branched out into different, uh, different countries, and uh, we don't have time to get into it, but it's, it's a fascinating story. But what they found through that 
uh, returned scripture was that salvation was by grace alone. Sola gratia. Because none of us could earn God's gift. You can't earn a gift. And it came through faith alone. Sola fide. In Christ alone. Solus Christus. Because we are united to Jesus' achievement by trusting his justification. By trusting his validation as our own. And all of this led to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo uh, Gloria. Because God was the giver of this gift and all praise naturally goes to the giver and not the recipient. And so, just in closing here, it's, it's tragic to me that actually when you, when you go read official Catholic doctrine in the, in the Council of Trent, which was the response to this, um, it actually in its essence, agrees with a lot of what the reformers were saying. But there was so much human baggage built up around this that it was virtually impossible. It didn't agree on everything, don't get me wrong. Some essential points were different. But there was so much baggage that was built up around uh, what the Bible said that it was virtually impossible to hear that message. And in fact, the reason I think that heresy that was in the early church, it was Pelagius and Augustine, it was in the Reformation, and it's alive and well today. The reason that it keeps resurfacing in every age is it's everything within us resists that idea of a free gift. The reason is we understand purchases, we understand earning and payment, but we don't understand gifts. We understand slavery. We understand working off our debt, but we don't understand family. A slave works and one day hopes to earn their freedom. And when the master grants them their freedom, it's in response to, to it's, it's payment for services rendered. But a son a daughter knows how to accept a gift from a loving father. They don't think of any, anything of it. It's natural to receive a gift. That's why, you know, if you have kids, they don't, I hope, they don't turn around on Christmas Day and try and repay you dollar for dollar, crown for crown for all the gifts that you bought them. That would be strange. You should probably get that looked at um, if that happens. Um, because children know how to receive gifts from their parents. And the problem is, um, we believe, especially as modern people, we believe that we can make something of ourselves without God's help, thank you very much. We continually want to pay God for his troubles because we think somehow that we're self-sufficient. And so there's something in us that wants to share just a little bit of the credit I must have done something to earn this. And you can see just by looking at the things that we so often turn to for justification. Uh, how do you know that you're saved? Well, I know that I'm saved because I sincerely repented and now I do my best to obey God. That's, how I, that's my justification. I know that I'm saved because of that. Or how do you know that you're saved? Well, because I'm a faithful 
uh, baptized member of the church and I tithe and I take communion. Um, and so that's how I know that I'm really a Christian, that I'm really worthy before God. But underneath that, the message of the gospel is that there's nothing you've done or that you can do to make you worthy in God's, uh, uh, in God's presence. There's nothing worthy in yourself of God's justification. Not the quality of your repentance or the faithfulness of your obedience or, the, or your understanding of Scripture, which are all very Christianese ways of, of talking about something. Uh, but what those claims do is essentially turn relationship into religion. They turn a gift into a commodity and they end up refusing the gift. And so that's not the good news. The good news is that God has chosen to offer you his own righteousness as a gift. And now the way to receive the gift of God's grace, it's not just by turning away from your sin. It's also by turning away from your own justification, by turning away from your own righteousness as the thing that you trust in, and turning towards his righteousness alone offered to you as a gift. And that is the, 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 the precious um, heritage that was re-dug uh, up in, in the Reformation. And, and as Karen said, it's, it hasn't stopped. Uh, semper reformanda was the other Latin phrase of the Reformation, that the church is always in reform because our humanness constantly turns God's gift into a commodity. <laughs> but it's turning away from that and turning towards Jesus' righteousness as the only thing that we trust in. And that is how we respond to his free gift. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are um, we're just overwhelmed by the generous, lavish, incredible gift that you have offered to us. Lord, that we could have no hope of earning. We could have no hope of paying you back for. That you not only forgave us, Lord, but you died to give us your record, your, uh, your CV, your grades, so that we can become part of your family. We can enjoy the inheritance of a child of God. Lord, we thank you for your gift. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to turn away from our, our sin but also turn away from all of the other even good things that we so easily put our trust in and that we would see you as the gift giver, the one that we need to give all praise to and trust your justification alone in Jesus' name. Amen.